We're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're looking to uh, the Lord to help us as we go through his letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which are relevant to his church in every place and at all times. And we have looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus, and we have just finished looking at the letter to the church at Smyrna. So we're moving on tonight to look at the church in Pergamos or Pergamon. Uh, different translations have uh, different uh, variations of the same name. So Revelation 2 verse 12. Revelation 2 verse 12. And to the angel, that is the pastor, of the church in Pergamos writes... These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else... I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We'll stop there. We're not going to have time to look at all of this letter this evening. But let me start, as I've normally done with each of these letters, giving you some background information on the location of the church. Uh, Pergamos uh, was the capital city of Asia Minor. It was where the Roman government was based for that region. So it wasn't as big as Ephesus or Smyrna. Um, if you think of the United States of America, uh, Smyrna and Ephesus would be New York or Los Angeles or Chicago. And Pergamos is the Washington DC, uh, the seat of government. Uh, in this part of the world. And the buildings uh, of governments were on a terrace that went up uh, to the summit of a hill and uh, along uh, these terraces were several temples. And then right at the top of the hill was the temple to Caesar. And I think the temple was built during Nero's time just a little before uh, when John wrote this letter. So this was the seat of government. And it uh, had a huge library, apparently, of over 200,000 books. And according to tradition, it was the place where parchment was invented. I don't know how useful that bit of information is uh, to us tonight. But I want to look at two things tonight in this letter Jesus commends the church, and then Jesus condemns the church. So Jesus' commendation 
and then Jesus's condemnation. Unlike Smyrna, uh, there is criticism here, uh, and we need to look at both the encouragements and the negative feedback that the Lord gives. Interestingly, uh, he gives the positive first. So let's look at his commendation. If you've got a Bible, look at verses 12 and 13. He's writing to the minister and he's telling the minister to read this letter to the rest of the church. And I know your works, verse 13. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Now that's an encouragement. They were faithful in days of violent persecution. Now in Smyrna, there was persecution, but it was going to get worse and they were going to get thrown into prison and even be put to death. In Pergamos, that persecution had already arrived and one of their number, a little-known character, which we don't know anything about save this reference, Antipas, he was martyred. And look at how Jesus describes him. This nobody is called Antipas, my faithful master, uh, martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Did you notice that? He was killed among you where Satan dwells. The beginning of verse 13. I know your works. Why is there persecution? Where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Brothers and sisters, do you see that behind the opposition to the church is the devil? It's, it's not just uh, people uh, not liking us uh, because of certain views that we hold. It's a spiritual battle that we are involved in. I don't think we emphasize the supernatural enough in our day and age. And it's the forces of darkness headed by Satan himself who is uh, moving uh, amongst uh, the populace of Pergamos to cause them to want to persecute the church. Now, once we start thinking like that, it transforms the way we view the situation in which we're in. Does it not? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in high places. So it's not just a matter of the government, say, making laws that go against God's law. Yes, that's the surface of it. But behind that is an evil, not just force, but person, the devil himself. Do you believe in the devil? If you believe in the Lord, you must believe in Satan as well. Now, what was the place of Satan in Pergamos? I find it interesting, you know, that Jesus Christ contrasts or makes the parallel statement between where the church is, where you dwell, and where Satan's throne is. We don't think like that, do we? We tend to think, oh, we want to be in safety. Uh, we don't want to be uh, right in the headquarters of the enemy. But Jesus Christ 
often wants to have his people right in the middle of the battle. He doesn't want us to be in a little ghetto where we keep ourselves from the world. He wants us to be right at the forefront. Uh, It's interesting how in times of spiritual declension, we uh, go back, don't we, as it were? Don't you praise God for the fact that where the church is flourishing, she is where the throne of Satan is. I'm thinking at the moment of the church in China. The church is still being persecuted in China in our day. I'm thinking of the church in North Korea. That There are believers in North Korea and they have known blessing where the throne of Satan is. Now, Where was the persecution coming from in Pergamos? So that we can learn some lessons for our own day. I mentioned that uh, the city was built uh, around terraces and there were temples on these terraces leading up to the temple of Caesar on the top. Uh, There were many gods in Pergamos. And the devil can attack if there are many religions. I don't know if you've had this experience, but if you go to a place uh, where there is syncretism, where there is a mixture of gods, you always get a sense of oppression. Uh, I have always had that happen to me when I've been to certain parts of India. Uh, The most well-known place, of course, would be Varanasi, where, where you have... At its height, all these Hindu deities. And there is a real sense of darkness there. The throne of Satan. Uh, Let me just mention two particular gods in Pergamos. Uh, I don't know if the first one is relevant to us, but it's useful to know. Uh, There was uh, the uh, god, I'm not going to pronounce the name right, Asclepios. Uh, a medical god, and people would travel uh, to uh, the shrine of Asclepios uh, in Pergamos to be healed. They were putting their trust in this god. Interestingly, the symbol of Asclepios was a snake coiled around a staff. Do you know that's the symbol today of, uh, of medicine? Did you know that? (laughs) But I don't think this is where the persecution was coming from in Pergamos. This wasn't the seat of the devil. Now, this is why I think it is relevant to us. The topmost temple was to Caesar. Because Pergamos was the seat of Roman government, the cult of emperor worship, which we've already noted in the other places, where people had to worship Caesar as God. That cult was at its strongest in Pergamos. And as a result, the devil was really attacking the church through the Roman authorities in Pergamos. Now, do you know what that meant? It meant that if you wanted to have a good job in Pergamos, if you wanted to get along in society, if you wanted not to be opposed, 
You had to go up that hill and you had to go and offer incense on the shrine of Caesar. You just had to drop some incense and you just had to say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do. That's all. And because Christians, especially Antipas, refused to do that, he was put to death. He said, no way am I going to confess Caesar is Lord. There's only one Lord in my heart, and that is Jesus Christ. That's frightening, isn't it? For refusing to pay homage in the temple of Caesar. For refusing to say, how many words? Three words, Caesar is Lord. A person is put to death. How would you have felt if you were in the church in Pergamos, having had one of your number martyred? It's bad enough in lockdown, isn't it? It's getting wearisome. But we're not facing martyrdom. Even if the government was to persecute us, it wouldn't mean martyrdom. It might mean a fine. It might mean... A prison sentence, but definitely not martyrdom. And see how Jesus encourages, he commends these Christians. They needed to be strengthened. Look at how Jesus describes himself. Every time he describes himself to each church, taking one aspect of the vision that John had in chapter 1. And each uh, part of that vision is completely relevant to the situation the particular church is in. And if you're going through it at the moment, then, my friend... Jesus knows what to say to you. He knows where you're at. He knows what words you need. Listen to the description of himself to the church at Pergamos. These things, says he, who has the sharp two-edged sword. He's the one who holds the sword. I know in Romans 13, we are told that God has ordained governments, including the Roman governments because Paul wrote those words when Nero was the emperor and Nero was a dictator and Paul said that uh, the Neros of this world hold the sword the sword uh, of authority and the government today still holds that metaphoric sword And we must honour those in authority. The Christians in Pergamon had to honour the Romans. But once they had to say Caesar is Lord, they were overstepping the boundaries of Scripture. And when the government starts telling us to go against God's word, then we can't obey them there. And I'm sure there were believers in Pergamos who were getting anxious. And they were thinking, what's going to happen to us? Antipas is gone. Are they going to come after the rest of us? Is the church going to be destroyed? You see, they couldn't look back as we do and see that it's in the fires of persecution that the Savior purifies his church and that often the church doesn't shrink, but it mushrooms during persecution. They didn't have the advantage that we have of looking back at all of that But what Jesus is saying is, yes, Caesar holds a sword. 
But I'm the one who is the real sword bearer. You see that sword Caesar's got? He's only got it because I've authorized it. Do you see the government today in our country, in the United States, in China, in Russia? They are appointed by the same Jesus. Jesus is the highest authority. It is not whoever is the president of China. It is not the new president of the United States. It is not President Putin that has the final authority. It is Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. This is how one commentator puts it. There is a higher power, a higher sword, God's sword, God's authority over life and death. You know, the emperor had power to put people to death. We don't see the authorities in our country with that much power, thank God. But the Roman emperor had that power, but that's where his power stopped. He could not touch the immortal soul of these Christians. Antipas, when he died for the faith, even though his body was destroyed, his soul went to be with his saviour. Jesus said, fear not those who kill the body. And that's all they can do. Jesus left his disciples on earth with these words, very well-known words, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Wow. <laughs> I remember once um, a Welsh minister had the privilege of going to 10 Downing Streets and he texted some of us and said, I am now looking out of the window of 10 Downing Streets and looking at the back garden. Well, that is a privilege, I guess. To be in the corridors of power. My friend, when we come into the presence of Jesus Christ, we are in a better place than Downing Street, aren't we? We're in a better place than the Kremlin. We're in a better place uh, than the White House. We are in the Holy of Holies. And we have the right to petition the King of Kings. Do we think like that? And there's another question here. If Jesus Christ is completely in control, why did he allow poor Antipas to be put to death? I don't know. I don't know. Why does he allow suffering if he's in complete control? I don't know. All I know is this, that it's through suffering, even through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. I, I can't give you a slick answer. I can't. And if you read a book that tries to do that, throw it away. All I know is this, that there's such a thing as the theology of suffering. Now, those of you who like to have a bit of theology, uh, here is one theology that we neglect. The theology of suffering. Let me read what Paul wrote to the Colossians. Colossians 1, verse 24. 
I now rejoice, he says, in my sufferings. And Paul wasn't writing those words from a conference center. He was writing them from prison, from prison. And you know what they say of Paul's letters written from prison, that they smell of the prison. And sometimes it's those books that have been written from prison that have the aroma of Christ about them. And this is what Paul is saying. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. I'm suffering for you, for the sake of the church. And then he says something astounding. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is his church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given me for you. What does he mean by that? He means this. We are not adding to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross, right? What he did on the cross, as we looked this morning, was complete, 100%. But when we're joined to Christ, we are united to him in his sufferings. And one of the ways that Jesus Christ uses us to spread his gospel is through our sufferings. Martin Luther said that one of the three things a minister has to do, one of the three things is suffer. Paul is saying, as I'm suffering, you are being ministered to. Uh, you know, Christians who've really suffered, we are wimps compared to Christians in days gone by. Christians like Antipas. Who was Antipas? Nothing else is known about him. But in heaven's book, he's famous. And one writer uh, in the 20th century wrote about Antipas, Joseph Son. Am I pronouncing his name right? Joseph Son? Ton? Son? A Romanian pastor during Ceausescu's regime when communism was persecuting the church. Pastors and Christians were being put into prison. They suffered terribly, terribly. And Joseph Son wrote a book called The Theology of Martyrdom. That's a good theology, isn't it? If you want to study systematic theology, why don't you study The Theology of Martyrdom? And he said, writing about Antipas, that God gives, not just to ministers, but to all of us, a stewardship of suffering. Do you think of stewardship in that sense? What's stewardship? Stewardship is something we look after on behalf of another person. So God can give you and me good health. Have you thought of good health as stewardship? That if you've got good health, you've got to use it for the Lord. Uh, you know, if you're a young person, it's good stewardship when there's no lockdown, that is. To spend your long summer holidays serving the Lord on beach mission or uh, on camp. Money, when you get older, certainly not if you're young. Money is stewardship from the Lord, as Howell preached recently. It's not ours. It's something to use for the furtherance of the gospel. Well, Joseph Son said, suffering is also stewardship. The stewardship of suffering as we go through the fire. The Lord is seen in us more clear than ever. Uh, you know, when you uh, use your time or your money for the Lord, it has investment value that goes into eternity. 
My friend, if you are suffering for the Lord in this life, in eternity it will show. Antipas, when he got to glory, I'm sure saw that his suffering had really been used of God to benefit the church and spread the gospel. Uh, I've got to hurry. Uh, There's a hymn. We don't have a recording of it. It's in our hymn book. Oh, let my life be given. Whatever my stewardship is, let my life be given. My years for thee be spent. World fetters all be riven, all be broken. And joy, listen to this, joy with suffering blend. Isn't that good? Joy with suffering blend. Thou gavest thyself for me, I give myself to thee. So that Jesus commending the church, remaining faithful even unto death, now, very quickly, Jesus condemns also the church. And this is quite complicated. What does he condemn them for? <sighs> Nevertheless, I have a few things, verse 14, against you. Because you have people there who hold the doctrine of Balaam. And then he names another group, which is really the same group, the Nicolaitans, verse 15. We've already come across the Nicolaitans in Ephesus. The Nicolaitans, uh, which means to conquer people, lorded it over people, and they said, basically, anything goes if you're a Christian. Now, in Pergamon, these Nicolaitans were given free reign, and Jesus Christ is rebuking the pastor of the church and the members for not dealing with them. Now then, look at the big picture here. Uh, Satan is out to get the church, right? He tried getting the church through persecuting them in Pergamon, and he failed. He was a roaring lion, and his roar didn't affect them. So what he does is change tactics, and instead he transforms himself. Think of uh, the uh, God in Pergamon that people went to, to be healed. Think of the symbol, the serpent. So Satan is a subtle serpent, and he transforms himself into an angel of light. And if he can't get you and me through fear, he will get you through seduction. That's what he did in Pergamon. How did he do it? He entered people's hearts, and these people were in the church, and they were teachers in the church, and were told they were Nicolaitans, and that they taught the doctrine of Balaam. Dear me, what's that about, you ask? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> that's why we read from Numbers 25. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet or false prophet? We don't know. And Balak, an evil king, wanted Balaam to curse the children of Israel as they were traveling through his land. And Balak was going to pay Balaam to do that. Now, that's a clue. Balaam is in it for the money. And every time Balaam tried to put a curse on the children of Israel, God turned it into a blessing. <laughs> Don't you find that? When uh, the evil one tries to bring a curse upon you, God somehow turns it around for you are good. This is why I love God. He works together all things for our good. 
And so what Balaam did, he could not get at Israel in that way. What he did was counsel Balak, and this is the relevance, to send, forgive my old-fashioned English here, but I'd rather not put it in modern English, to send scantily clad Moabite women (laughs) into Israel. And the men of Israel were tempted by these women that were dressed in a way to seduce. And eventually they slept with the women. And that led to them going with the women to the shrines of their gods and offering sacrifices to their gods. And as a result of that, God's judgment came upon them, as we had in the reading. He sent a plague, and was it 24,000, if I remember rightly, 24,000 men were destroyed by that plague. The Council of Balaam, it's called. I don't think it was a teaching, per se. It was the advice of a false prophet, the seduction to take God's people away from the Lord. And that's what was happening very subtly in Pergamos. So how did it happen? We must be very, very careful here. Uh, This is Muntz, a very good commentator. Some within the church had decided that accommodation was the wisest policy. They taught the way of compromise. They believed honestly, that it was possible, without disloyalty to the Lord, to maintain a peaceful coexistence coexistence with Rome. The Council of Balaam, very subtle. Maybe they'd heard of not just Antipas, but of the churches in other places. And maybe the leadership started to listen to these people. And they argued like this, "We, we don't have to make an absolute stand here. There's nothing wrong in going up to the shrine on top of the hill every year and in putting some incense uh, in it and in saying, just saying with our mouths, Caesar is Lord. In our hearts, we don't believe that, but it's just wise to not uh, do anything uh, that will disrupt the peace. Can, can you see how subtle it is? There is nothing wrong in getting uh, into bed, as it were, with the Roman authorities Maybe we can influence them for the gospel. My friend, that never happens. When we argue like that, it's us who are brought down, not the people we are trying to influence who are brought up. Uh, Maybe uh, they were arguing like this. We don't want to be too strict. We want to be in the culture that God has put us in. So let's not uh, be uh, too serious Uh, Maybe it's all right to do some of the things that unbelievers are doing. Maybe it's okay uh, to sleep around as long as we're faithful. There is mention of sexual immorality. There is mention of eating things sacrificed to idols. Basically, what was happening was this. There was no difference between the church and the society in which they lived in. The doctrine, I don't think, was wrong. But the morals was corrupted. The morals was corrupted. It's subtle, but we need to be on guard. Now then, I need to say one thing before I come to a conclusion. 
In Ephesus, Jesus warned the church that in dealing with this same group, the Nicolaitans, they had been too strict. So Jesus praises them for disciplining these Nicolaitans, but he also says, I've got this against you in Ephesus. You've lost your love. So Ephesus had gone too far the other way, right? They'd become heresy hunters. They'd become entwined in all sorts of rules. Maybe the church in Pergamos had saw what had happened in Ephesus. Maybe they'd read the letter of Christ to Ephesus. And maybe they said, ah, we don't want to go into that extreme. We don't want to be legalists. But the problem is we creatures of reaction, aren't we? And the pendulum swings the other way. And so they basically said, as long as we're trying to serve the Lord, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. If we are in the temple of another God, it's God really we are serving. Hang on, hang on. You can't worship Christ and another God, can you? Let me come to a conclusion here. What? What kind of effect could this Council of Balaam have on us? John Marshall, some of you will have known, uh, one of the few people that I've come across who's written about the Council of Balaam. Uh, I can thoroughly recommend uh, his uh, piece. It's extremely challenging. But I think he puts his finger on it when it says this. This Council of Balaam comes across as orthodox. That's the problem, you see, with false teaching, with false teachers as well. They don't display themselves as they really are. But the problem is there's enough poison in it to lead us astray, to corrupt us. There's enough arsenic in it to poison the Christian life. So how do I know if something has the counsel of Balaam about it? How do I know? We must protect this pulpit, right? I need to be protected. We must protect uh, those that we have as visiting preachers. We, we must be careful that we don't get poisoned. How do I know? Just a few bits of advice and then I've got an example and then I'll be done. I promise. One is this, it tends to feed, not the new man in Christ, it feeds the old nature. It tends towards the carnal rather than the spiritual. What do I mean by that? I mean this, there are certain things, even teachings, that seem to cause us to thrive in certain uh, desires. Uh, I uh, can think now of uh, prosperity teaching. It's really just carnal. It's got nothing to do with stewardship for the Lord. It's all about making money and about being number one. It's all about me. That's the counsel of Balaam, isn't it? Another example. Now, I'm all for uh, being biblical in our worship. Uh, there's, there's nothing in the Bible about having to have an organ, right? I, I think it's great to have an organ when we're out of lockdown as an accompaniment, but there is nothing wrong with having another instrument as an accompaniment, 
But, isn't it interesting, sometimes when you come across worship leaders in certain places, that they're never old, they're never ugly, they are always young and good-looking. It's a subtle danger, isn't it? And then one other thing. How do I know if something is of the Council of Balaam? How do I know if something is of the Lord? One simple answer. By their fruits, you shall know them. By their fruits, does it produce love, joy, peace, long-suffering, what Howell's been doing in the Bible study. Does it make me more Christ-like? Does it make me want to know Jesus Christ better? You see, we're not talking about legalism here. We're talking about the effect something has on us. Do you know what the word pergamos means? It means married. These believers were in a covenant to Christ. They were Christ's bride. They were about to be married to him. The council of Balaam was trying to corrupt them, trying to draw them away from Christ, to make them commit adultery, spiritually as well as physically. I don't know what you make of this. I'll finish with this. Many, many years ago, churches, as well as individual Christians, in order to guard their hearts, they would covenant with the Lord. Do you know what that means? They would make an agreement with the Lord in order uh, to follow after him more closely. I don't know if there's anything in this for us. Uh, one of the earliest independent churches in Wales is uh, Manidbach in Llangevelach in Swansea. And in 1700, they wrote this covenant. It's as if they're emphasizing we're married to Christ. Wherever he has put us, whether it's Pergamos in uh, the seat of Roman government where Satan is attacking on that front or whether it's in Wales and with all the uh, compromises of 21st century uh, society, we're married to Christ. Yeah? Now, listen to this. We do heartily take this one God for our only God and our chief good and this Jesus Christ for our only Lord, Redeemer, and Saviour, and this Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, for our Sanctifier, and the doctrine by him revealed and sealed by his miracles and now contained in the Holy Scriptures. We do take for the law of God and the rule of our faith and life, uh, that is the word of God, and repenting unfeignedly without hypocrisy, of our sins, we do resolve through the grace of God sincerely to obey him, both in holiness to God and righteousness to men, and in special love to the saints and communion with them against all the temptations of the devil, the world, and our own flesh, and this to the death. Isn't that good? We help one another. We're married to Christ. And we, my friends, are to be faithful to him. And he's in control. And let us encourage one another while it is still today for his namesake.